Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Claudia and today I am honored to welcome Edward Dixon in Green Minds. Ed is head of responsible investment for Aviva's investors real assets platform and leads the firm's ESG and sustainability strategy across 50 billion pounds of real estate, infrastructure and nature-based solutions. As direct investors with broad private market capabilities, Ed works across multiple asset classes including direct real estate, private credit, private equity and structured finance. Joining Aviva Investors in 2019, Ed oversaw the sustainability strategy creation for the largest long-term assets fund, seated at 1.5 billion pounds and focused on delivering decarbonization and social value in the UK, and the climate transition real assets fund, seated at 500 million pounds, which went on to deliver the largest nature-based solutions land transactions in the country. Ed has over 20 years industry experience through consulting, development and project management roles at Lansec, Mace Consulting and Marks and Spencer. Welcome to Green Minds, Ed. Thanks so much for inviting me, Claudia. It's great to be with you. So there's a lot to unpack also from your bio that I just read, but let's just start with a short overview of your career, maybe, and what led you towards the point where you are now and why ESG and responsible investment? Well, my career started in a very different place to where it ended up. And I, after school, I really just wanted to work. So I qualified as a carpenter and was working in house building for quite a few years in the lead up to the crash in 2008. And when the crash came, obviously most construction work really ground to a halt quite quickly. So I lost my job and I was was redundant and all I had was a carpentry qualification and I kind of needed to reinvent myself at that point. And I started a sponsored degree course with a developer And the first project that I got was this building called Marks and Spencer Cheshire Oaks, which was an M&S store up in Ellesmere Port. And it was probably the most sustainable retail building that's ever been built. I haven't seen another one to date that's probably done more than that store did. And it was really at the point where sustainability in construction and in architecture and design and built environment was really quite zeitgeisty it was very much kind Mm. of on trend and so I had this incredible baptism of fire into sustainable construction I lived really close to the site and I was on site at seven o'clock every morning and didn't leave until six if not later every night and I physically built some of the store myself and so after two years of actually building out the store and then completing it and handing it over to Marks and Spencer I then went to manage the post occupancy evaluation. So I moved to London and mm. ended up at MS's head office working in their sustainability team. And from there, it just kind of spiraled. So I really kind of got the bug on sustainability and I did some consulting, I then moved to Landsec, formerly Land Securities, in a sustainable design role. I grew my career from there by doing an exec MBA and mm. that was hard work, but it was it was really worth it. And from there, used all of those experiences to land my role in Aviva Investors. So if we backtrack over the last 20 years, you know, I started my career when I was 18, doing 50 pound jobs on the weekend, and I've ended up with 50 billion of real assets 21 years later, actually now. And so it's really been a process of going from right to the bottom, right to the top with sustainability arriving about a third of the way through my career and then really dominating the rest of it. Thanks for sharing that. It's inspiring and congrats on that great achievement. I mean, I think not not many people can say that they have this experience of actually this hands-on literal experience with working with real assets to then, you know, 
being in an office and dealing with these huge billions of investments. So real, real, really impressed by that. And I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'd like to maybe uh, come back to the present and ask you what your current role at head of responsible investment at Aviva Investors entails. Because I mentioned you integrate ESG and sustainability across the real assets, but can you please tell us a bit more? Sure. Well, if we imagine Aviva Investors real assets as a as a business, Aviva Investors Real Assets is part of the wider Aviva Investors business, which is a financial services company. It's an asset manager. And by that, I mean that we're managing the financial assets of mm. institutions, typically pension trustees and insurance company companies. And we're part of the wider Aviva group, which is where a lot of people listening today might get their car insurance or their travel insurance. Aviva Group is a financial services business which is made up of these consumer-facing insurance businesses and the asset management side, which is actually managing those financial assets. Mm. And we work for both for our kind of internal client, right, which is the life insurance and the general insurance businesses of Aviva that me or you might use as a, as a consumer. But we also work for a really broad spread of different financial asset owners, we would call them, which is insurance companies that are taking up all the insurance policies of their customers, and then they're investing them to make sure that they're growing them over time. And groups of pension trustees, where it could be the pension of the University of Liverpool, or it could be a government pension scheme, or it could be the London Borough of Camden, which are investing their staff's pension schemes. So we're typically working for asset owners, which are trying to lock their money away for a really long period of time. And that could be 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And there are really sort of two styles of investment here. One is where we're trying to grow those funds. Mm. So as they're being invested, we might be trying to grow them to such a point where they're bigger than they were before, right? So we're investing in businesses that have growth opportunities or we're investing in assets which can be refurbished or can be grown over time. Mm. But then the other style of investment is more about what we would call liability matching. And that's where we're typically through debt. So we're lending to companies. We're trying to lock money away in very stable, safe, predictable projects Mm -hmm. for very long periods of time so that small amounts can be paid back to help our clients meet their liabilities, which might be paying out life insurance policies every year, or it might be paying out people's pensions when they retire. So there's a real mix there in terms of some of the stuff that's a bit more high risk and some of the stuff that's a bit more low risk. But generally, as an asset manager, we're investing for the long term. So when we invest in buildings or when we invest in infrastructure, we're very investing over very long time frames. And just to give you a flavor of the actual like, well, what are you actually investing in? It yeah. could be it could be buildings which we're buying, refurbishing and then selling. Okay. It could be buildings which we're buying, but they have a very long lease. 10, 20, 30 years in some case where we're going to work with the occupier of that building to maintain the building over a long period. It could be plots of land, which we're going to be developing into something new all the way through to could be electric vehicle companies, which we're investing in now at quite an early stage, hoping to work with them and grow them until they're much more mature businesses all the way through to things like nature-based solutions where we're investing in land so that we can then plant trees and Mm. repair peatland. We can draw down carbon from the atmosphere and we can generate 
returns for our clients for that all the way through to things like social infrastructure so it could be schools or hospitals mm. or it could be critical infrastructure like energy infrastructure that produces or transports energy around our systems so if you just think about all of the things that you see as you're walking around london you're walking into uni every day yeah. you know you get up in the morning you switch the kettle on that power's coming from somewhere right you then get onto the tube and that infrastructure was built and is financed by somebody you get to work and it's in a large commercial office building and again that is owned and financed and maintained by somebody all of these things that we see and interact with every day are the sorts of things that we invest in thank you for that and i'd like to ask how sustainability comes into play in all this i mean obviously all the things real assets are are by definition, something that's tangible, right? Something, as you mentioned, we see every day. Uh, buildings and construction are one of the largest contributors to carbon emissions. But you, as head of re- responsible investment um, and someone who's worked on ESG and sustainability, you probably are involved in making sure that these investment are, investments are as responsible as possible. So how do you approach yeah, responsible investment, ESG and sustainability, and kind of making sure that these investments uh, provide return, but also aren't doing any unnecessary harm to the planet and contribute to climate change? Yeah, it's a really good question. So what's really important to point out here is that the people that we represent, our end client, Mm. are me or you, right? Or our mum and dad or our aunts and uncles. It's the people that are interacting with and are using these assets on a a day-to-day basis. And so it's really critical that we represent their interests, both as our clients, but also as our stakeholders in terms of the communities that we're investing in. Because it wouldn't be right for us to use pension and insurance money to invest into communities in a way which actually was negatively impacting those stakeholders whose money it is in the first place, right? Mm. So we as real assets investors have this unique position where ESG is not something which is a optional factor that we can switch on or switch off. It's not something that we can do in some funds and not do in others. Mm. It's something that where you're investing for the long term and your actions as an investor have an impact on people, you have to deliver a good level of understanding of the environmental, social and governance factors involved with any potential investment. You have to understand the long-term risks both to the asset itself Mm. or to the broader climate that the asset might create or the risks that might be created to people such as pollution. So it's not optional and it's something that every real assets investment, whether it's a big loan to a company because they're going to build a piece of infrastructure or whether it's a building that we'll be buying to refurbish, we have to consider our stakeholders and how they might be negatively impacted, as well as thinking about climate, society, and how they might be negatively impacted. So Mm -hmm. ESG is is critically important. The other thing to consider though, is that it's not just a kind of risk input type process, right? We have to understand E, S, and G factors so that we know whether our, our asset that we might be investing in or creating is going to be sustainable in the long term, right? Or are we investing in such a way that actually climate transition risk will affect this asset and make it worthless in 10 years? Because that's that's quite possible. We also have to think about what's the potential upside 
and what are the potential positive outcomes that could be created through delivering this asset? Because again, as a real assets investor, there will be some degree of positive and negative outcomes that are going to come from this. Mm. And it's on you to really start to measure them and understand them and start to use your influence as an asset manager to be able to influence and drive them in the right directions. So like taking like a practical example, if we come to, let's say, an office building and we're going to invest in an old office building, which needs to be refurbished, then we could do the most basic possible job, right? We could purely think about financial returns and that would drive us to design the building in such a way that you know the floor plates were maximized the cost of the facade and the cost of the new equipment and plant would be minimized we would be thinking very short term we would probably during the process of construction do it as quickly and cheaply as possible and as a result of that what we probably end up with is unhappy stakeholders Mm. We would end up with an asset which was not worth as much as it could be because it's not going to be a successful place that people are going to want to work in. And in the long term, we might have made our money year one, two and three, but in the long term, that asset will not be a success. Whereas actually, on the flip side, if we invest in high quality design, if we invest in good quality community engagement to work out what people want from the project. If we invest in creating skills and opportunities through that project, as we are for a couple of our uh, high profile central London construction projects at the moment, it draws in people and draws in culture and draws in positive influences on that project, which Mm. end up being good for the people that live near to it, good for our clients and financially um, positive for the long term. It's also really similar when we think about lending. You know, we could run a bare bones, very simple ESG analysis process, very surface level. We could look at the borrower and not bother to challenge them on anything particularly tricky like their board diversity or how they're treating their staff and their supply chain, whether they're paying people fairly, whether they're actually investing in the underlying infrastructure that we're lending against to maintain it properly in a way which is not polluting the environment. And actually, all of those things will lead to, in the long run, that borrower being less likely to be paying us our money back right so it's not good for the people who are living near or around that infrastructure it's not good for the company because the company's going in the wrong way because they're not being appropriately challenged by the market and it's certainly not good for our clients because in the long run our clients are going to lose their money so it's this very simple premise of i know there's a lot of factors and people hear a lot of acronyms and there's lots of different ways to think about ESG and responsible investment but actually what it really really comes down to is thinking long term and not short term Mm. and having a strong awareness of the potential stakeholder impacts of any particular project and if we always come back to those two things then we'll probably be in a good place. Yeah I I definitely agree with you on what you said and especially on the long-term element uh, but I'm still curious about um, because this this it seems like you know it's really embedded in your vision and in your uh, approach. But how does you how how do you practically translate this into you know let's say someone who's listening might be interested in working as an ESG analyst for an institutional investor. So how does it 
translate to practically, you know, having an ESG and sustainability strategy and ESG integration into the investment process. How do you assess this? You know, what are the key metrics that you consider? And maybe if you, even if you have an example on how you, how you do this. Sure. Well, let's do two examples, right? So let's do a climate aligned one and then something that's maybe a little less obvious. And I'll, I'll start with the one that's less obvious. Okay. So a, one, a topic that comes up quite a lot is rare earth metals. Mm. So things like cobalt and lithium, which are metals which are obviously needed for the energy transition because they go into creating batteries. So if you were an ESG analyst and you were starting your career with Aviva Investors in my team, and that kind of deal came through the door and we were taking a look at it, working with our colleagues, the deal might be emerging over a maybe two, three month period. Mm. So this isn't a, an overnight kind of flash in the pan, have a, have a quick look. We, we take a long time to have a really long hard think about it right and typically an investment bank or an intermediary will be bringing that sort of transaction to the market and they might be approaching banks or they might be approaching institutional lenders like us for debt and it will probably be on a pretty large scale at the outset some of the initial due diligence will have been done quite well by the intermediary and the investment bank. So we'll get like a deal room, right? Which is like a, a portal uh, full of information. Mm. And our teams are working really closely with the core origination teams, origination pe pe people being the, the, the ones that are actually deploying money into the market. They're looking really closely at a really broad variety of ES&G factors both in terms of how they might create risk towards the asset itself in the long term, but also in terms of the potential negative and potentially positive impacts that it might have on broader society or on stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And so you're going into, you know, the real nitty gritty of environmental factors about the asset itself, but also the way that the asset will be managed and run for the long term, the company that's managing and running the asset, looking at their, at their supply chain, to try to understand how does this deal compare to other potential lithium mines or cobalt mines? Is this good or is it bad, right? Mm. Do the practices that they have in place put them in a position where they're reducing pollution as much as is possible or actually are they doing half as much as a comparable um, project uh, down the road so we're just trying to understand in, in the kind of in relation to other potential types of deals that are similar is, is it good or bad mm. from a social perspective we might be looking at okay well if a mine is going to be constructed how is that going to affect people in the local area actually once the mine is operational what then happens with the supply chain for the mine and how are people going to be treated? What's health and safety like? Does the company that's going to be running it have a good track record? All the way through into kind of governance topics where we're looking at um, what are the various different parties? Um, what's their approach to tax? Um, what's their approach to their board diversity? So, and across all of those E, S and G factors, we're trying to build up a picture of the asset the way that the asset's going to be run, its supply chain, the companies that are involved, to work out what the risks are. And then as we really start to build up that picture, we're probably going to get into some engagement 
and that'll happen between us and the intermediary or potentially with us and the borrower where we're starting to have a series of calls with them ask some questions start to ask for more information and that potentially and not in all cases but that sometimes leads to either incentives or to covenants so we might be creating an incentive for a deal whereby an individual borrower would receive some sort of a benefit in terms of the cost of their loan over time in return for delivering something which is material to the nature of the loan and, and the asset. Or there might be some kind of restrictive covenant which would actually prevent them from doing something over the long term. So year, a couple of years ago, we had a coal deal where it was really on the threshold for us as to whether we thought it was acceptable or not. But we included a covenant which prevented that business from growing their investments in coal. And actually, they had to phase them out over the lifetime of the loan. So and then and then once the asset is actually going to an investment committee, you as the analyst are going to be sitting in the room alongside the deal team. They're going to be presenting every single aspect of this deal and they're going to get questions from all of the senior people in the business in terms of have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? They're going to go deep into the financials. They're going to look at page 67 and pick up a number and be like, well, why is this number? And if you've done the work and you've accounted for all the risks, then the investment goes through and and, and we're actually going to go about and start putting that money into the market and investing in that project. So that's a kind of like a typical example on the risk side. Actually, in terms of more climate aligned funds, it could go the complete um, opposite way. So we're doing a similar process, but actually a lot of the work comes after the investment committee and not before. So what I mean by that is, let's say we're looking at an electric vehicle charging company and we're actually looking at taking an equity stake in that business. We are going to do a lot of due diligence on that business. We're going to work with them very closely in the lead up to the investment committee decision. And we're still going to be looking at where, what's their battery supply chain like? What's their approach to the specification of materials? Let's have a look at their board governance, et cetera, and the, and the, the structure of their company and their approach to tax. So we're looking at all the same topics, but the work really starts after the investment committee has made a, a decision. Because once you are working with a company and you are on the board, you're actually then becoming like a support center for that business. So we might be working with their suppliers. We might be working with their board. We might be putting someone onto their audit committee. We're actually helping that business to grow and it's very hands-on. And it's really the same in real estate. So if you invest in a building, the investment committee process is going to make a decision but then the work starts because we have to start energy management projects we have to start working with our suppliers to operate the building in the right way so depending on the structure we're either doing a lot of the work up front or the work starts after in terms of like really delivering asset management so that's you know something we could also call engagement or active ownership right what you do when you engage with the asset when you're on the board and you you help them you engage with them in the running the asset and maintaining it, right? Yeah, and the concept of engagement really in asset management was born out of asset managers engaging with listed companies. So let's say an asset manager owns 1% of Tesla, then mm. that asset manager is going to sit down with Tesla and challenge them on the things that they think are important, whether it's board diversity or whether it's supply chain or whatever. Mm. Engagement in our world in real assets is similar, but there are some distinct changes in terms of like the power structure and, and the kind of the, the politics around it. Because if we own 
51% of an electric vehicle charging company, we are the company, right? Mm. If we operate 320 buildings in the UK and Europe, then it's our staff and our asset managers and our portfolio managers and our supply chain managers that are running that portfolio. Mm. If we are engaging with a borrower, we are engaging only through the terms of the loan which we are making to them. We don't necessarily have the right to get in there and change the way that their whole business works. So engagement is still obviously a critical topic in real assets, but the structure of real assets investors means that sometimes we have to think about engaging with ourselves first mm. before we engage with counterparties. No, thanks for thanks for explaining that and, and complementing that. I asked you before, and and I want to still unpack this, although maybe it's a it's a bit of a different structure of an investment because it's a it's a fund, right? So the climate transition real assets fund. I find it really interesting. I've read a bit about it, but if you just could please please briefly tell our listeners what what that is about. And my follow up question is: achieving net zero in a real assets portfolio. How does that work? How how to do that? And what are the real challenges of that? Well, the Climate Transition Real Assets Fund is a good example of that, because if we think about our 50 billion AUM across all of those assets, of course, not every asset is in a sustainable fund. Every asset that we manage is either in a fund, which is a it's like a company that's been set up to manage a particular pool of capital, or it's in what we would call a seg, right, which is a segregated mandate, as in it's a pool of capital, which is not having lots of different investors investing in it. It's a, it's established just for one client. So everything's in a, either in a fund or in a seg. And if you look across our platform, there's probably, probably about 35 different entities, whether they're segregated mandates or whether they're funds that, that we run. And so Climate Transition Real Assets Fund is one example. But that's a good example of a fund that's really been set up specifically to look at delivering net zero. And it's actually the only fund in our whole fund range which has a really hard net zero target and a very specific strategy to get there in a very defined time frame. And if you look at what the fund's made up of, it's got clean energy. So that could be electric vehicle charging, it could be onshore wind, it could be solar any any form of clean and renewable energy it's then got real estate and in within real estate we're either buying buildings that are already green or we're buying buildings that can be made to be green over time so we would buy them refurbish them and then either sell or or, or um, continue to operate the asset it's then got a little pool of kind of venture capital, private equity. So venture capital is is very early stage capital, much higher risk investing in businesses that may or may not make it over the long term. We obviously hope that they do, but not all of them will. And potentially private equity where we are taking a stake in a business that's probably in, in, in a growth stage. It's probably slightly earlier in its in its lifetime. And then the final little bit of of this of the fund is nature-based solutions, where we're investing directly in assets like forestry or like peatland restoration that can actually draw down carbon emissions from the atmosphere and lock them away. And actually, across all of those different asset classes, that really is how you need to start thinking as a real assets investor to invest in all of the things that you need to get to net zero. 
because investing in fossil fuels isn't necessarily going to help us, right? That's not going to get us anywhere close to net zero. There's still a role for that in terms of investing in fossil fuels and in a way which is helping to decarbonize those businesses or all those assets. That's not really appropriate for a, for a climate fund. But if you invest in renewables and you help to scale up renewables and deliver more of them faster, that's obviously helping the energy transition. If you invest in green buildings, if you invest in refurbishing buildings, then that's helping to decarbonize our built environment. If you invest into venture capital and private equity and help to scale small businesses, which are growing in this space mm. then you're helping to create those businesses which will be the larger listed businesses that we'll all invest in later down the line and if you invest in nature-based solutions then you're removing some of the emissions from the atmosphere that you might have been creating elsewhere through you know construction and refurbishment projects so it's like a microcosm basically of all the things that we need to do yeah here i had a follow-up question about how you actually define net zero because i mean there's different definitions how many percent uh, of it is actually a reduction how much is you know carbon offsetting do you have any specific um, you know way of how you define it and i just also like to because you said that this is a fund which has a set target by a certain time frame so it's net zero by 2040 right yeah and so yeah so what's the what's the actual net zero target how do you how do you define it yeah so most people would probably reference science-based targets in this instance and that's a movement which has really grown a huge amount of traction particularly in the kind of corporate world right with larger listed businesses but the essential premise of science-based targets is that you're not just counting up your emissions at the end of the year and then buying some offsets at five pound a ton cheaply off the internet and then offsetting your emissions and saying, you know, well done us, we've managed to reach net zero. It's very different to that. It's much more about reducing demand in your building portfolio and investing in the right sorts of assets so that you're actually reducing your emissions by it depends on the on the individual strategy, but probably between 80 and 90 percent over a long period of time and only when you've delivered that demand reduction and the long-term savings when you offset the the delta then can you really consider yourself to be net zero and that's important because every company even in 2039 and 11 months is still going to have some residual emissions it's going to have some things which are very difficult to abate and it could be shipping or it could be air travel or it could be steel production there are going to be some things which simply are too difficult to abate quickly and so a small allowance for some offsetting to offset those hard to abate sectors is generally become acceptable in in our sector so something like climate transition real assets fund and other funds will go this way in time is setting out a way to invest in the most low low carbon intensity assets that we can possibly find in the first place or investing in higher carbon intensity assets and then refurbishing them or improving them over time whilst also in the background developing a strategy for actually physically removing carbon emissions from the atmosphere that will start to pay out in the long term and the forestry project that we've invested in up in Scotland You know, this is not something which we're doing today to generate carbon credits so that we can declare that we're net zero, mm. um, because that would be 
uh, unethical. It is something that we're doing because in the long term, it generates emissions removals, which as our fund grows, will start to create a more balanced picture. Because even in 2039 and 11 months time, when that fund is hopefully still alive and kicking, we will still be doing construction projects, we'll still be refurbishing our buildings, we'll still be taking off cladding and replacing it, or we'll still be removing gas boilers and replacing them with air source heat pumps. And all of that stuff has a cost. You know, there's embodied carbon in the creation of an air source heat pump. There is um, diggers tracking around building sites, which uh, are probably still going to be using diesel in 2039 in some parts of the world. You cannot fully eradicate all of the emissions. And so taking on projects which, you know, if we start planting trees next year, mm -hmm. those trees aren't really going to start really drawing down emissions from the atmosphere for five, 10 years in any meaningful sort of way. So it's a long term play to help us to start to think over the next sort of 17 years in, in the lead up to 2040, what sorts of emissions removals might we start to need and how can we start those projects in a, in a sensitive and meaningful way now to almost insulate us in the long term from some of those more hard to abate emissions. This long-term perspective comes again, but it's super important in the climate change fight, essentially. And I wish more stakeholders, not only investors, but also governments. And there's this whole political debate about how majority of political parties just think so short-term, which is why a lot of governments can't really push the needle on climate change because they are not long-term visionaries because the system set up that way. So yeah, that's that's really nice to hear that you, you have this at Aviva Investors. I have one more about Aviva Investors and how you deal with uh, the regulatory landscape in terms of ESG, sustainable finance and investments. So how, how has this been for you? What are the main frameworks? I mean, TCFD, Task Force, for, I assume, but uh, how do you approach this? And uh, have you, because there's been a lot of talk about the challenges it brings. Uh, so have you experienced these and uh, what's your take on it? I guess at the moment there are two main pieces of regulation which asset managers and financial services are grappling with. Mm. The first is TCFD or the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures, as you said, and the second is the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations, which is a piece of European legislation. Mm -hmm. Between both of those, actually there are a lot of similar themes, but they're both trying to do quite, quite different things. TCFD was really born out of again, mostly for listed corporate companies, pressure from the market for companies to disclose their risks and emissions in order that investors in those companies could make more educated decisions about whether those businesses were acting in their own interests to reduce risks and protect the, their business interests for the long term. So take, for example, if you're like a soft drinks company right mm. and uh, you're making uh, I don't know, a popular soft drink beverage an investor is going to have an interest in you still being able to create that soft drink and sell it to your customers in 10 20 years time and so an investor probably wants to get a good idea of whether you have looked at water scarcity for example do you produce some of your soft drinks in parts of the world where water scarcity will become a serious issue in the near term? And if so, 
well, you might need to move your factories, right? And so it's all really around the lens of, of risk. And recently, TCFD has kind of arrived in asset management. So now if you're a pension investor or if you're an insurance company that's investing those large long-term assets, you are going to want to know from your asset manager whether they're invested in such a way that, frankly, they're still going to be there in 20, 10, 20 years' time when you come back to need them. So it's all about risk and it's all about the financial stability of the market. Um, whereas SFDR is trying to do something quite different. It's a disclosure regime, which is really, I guess, anti-greenwashing because it's forcing asset managers to say what they're going to do, to say how they're going to do it. And then it's holding them to account to disclosing against what they've said they're going to do. And so actually, in some cases, asset managers may say, well, we're not going to do very much at all in terms of sustainability. And then they might disclose that at the end of the year. But the important point is if you say that you're going to reduce your carbon emissions for the assets that you own, if you say that you're going to undertake good ESG due diligence, if you say that you're going to be creating social impact, then you better get on and do it because you're going to be held to account for doing it that in your annual disclosures. And that's in intended to give the market some confidence in terms of, you know, you or I or as ultimate beneficiaries of those funds because we've locked our savings away. Can we invest in a financial market which can be trusted to do the things that it says that it's going to do? So I think the combination of those two things of TCFD with this risk lens and SFDR with this like anti-greenwashing drive is creating a slightly more level playing field for asset management in terms of everyone has to look at and disclose risk in the same way and no one can start to advertise what they're doing and then not actually go about delivering it. You really have to do what you say you're going to do. So it's the beginning. It's not going to fix everything overnight. It is something which is going to take years to actually bring about the sort of change that we need it to. But from mm. these couple of regulatory kind of tweaks to the market, it's actually probably going to force a good standard of analysis and it's going to force companies not to overstate what they might be delivering and those can only be positive things despite all of the short-term challenges that it creates in terms of getting on top of your data and you know the reporting burden that it creates in terms of having to get the right numbers in the right boxes every year things that really helps the way you you describe these two to kind of differentiate and classify them and you touched upon that you believe that regulation is one part of but not the the only part of uh, tackling climate change and the issue but Now I'd like to zoom out of all the discussion which, which which you just had and zoom out a bit to the bigger picture, which is who or what do you think that can really push the needle on climate change in terms of, you know, or do you believe that we can stay within one and a half or well below two degrees? And if so, who do you think will be the will be the main driver of that? And I mean, probably you're gonna say a combination of, of those, which is what I like to say and what I believe. But yeah, just be curious about what you think, the where did the responsibility lies? For me, the biggest factor underlying all of this is risk. And the reason why companies invest in tried and tested proven technologies like oil and gas or, mm -hmm. you know, automotive companies that create petrol and diesel cars 
the reason why is because year one today, those companies don't look particularly risky. Do people still buy cars? Yeah. Do people still need oil and gas to be transported around so that we can, you know, fly from one country to another? Yeah. I mean, year one, looking right now, everything looks pretty normal. So companies are still investing in tried and tested, proven, easy technologies. And it takes intervention from government and from regulators to force everyone in the financial system to take a different view. So if governments subsidize fossil fuels, and if governments don't subsidize things like air source heat pumps or wind and solar technology, then that sends a signal to the market that the lowest risk, easiest things to invest in right now are fossil fuels and the trickier things to invest in, the way you'd have to take a bit of risk would be renewables. So where you get small changes in terms of helping to address that risk, it has a huge impact. So look at feed-in tariffs, renewable heat incentive in the UK. You know, the UK decided to de-risk new technologies by providing a little subsidy, which would kick in. The same thing's happening with electric vehicle charging infrastructure at the moment. There's a subsidy attached to that. So if you deliver an electric vehicle charging station, you get a little benefit from the government, which helps to de-risk it. Then institutional investors like us that are interested in locking your money away for long periods of time with low levels of risk are all going to crowd in. So that's what's needed. It's anything that we can do to de-risk these slightly newer, slightly more exotic asset classes and turn them from being newer, more exotic assets into easy to invest in uh, assets. You know, people say that money's like water, right? It flows to wherever it goes, can go most easily. Mm. And if we make it easy for investors to invest in existing technologies, then that's what they'll go and do. And if we make it easy for them in, to invest in new technologies, then they'll get on board. That's a great perspective. Thanks for sharing that. And as you say, these examples in the UK can serve as a good example that it's possible. Okay, I have two final questions. Uh, a thing that I've observed or you know, maybe it's just me, but I've, I, I've the conversations I've had with people who are either studying in sustainability management or climate change, ESG, environmental studies, often want to become head of sustainability, head of ESG, head of responsible investment, which is a position that you are in. So I'd be curious what the biggest challenges of this, of being in this position are, and maybe some lessons learned that you have taken. Yeah, sure. Well, I guess getting here, it's really important for me to to acknowledge that I am white, I'm male, and I'm middle class, right? I did have kind of humble beginnings to my career, but I was very lucky to have, you know, parents that had stable jobs. Both of my parents were teachers and, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but, it, you know, I didn't grow up in kind of adverse, like really difficult circumstances. So I had the a good start and being white and male and middle class, I had every op- opportunity afforded to me. So when I decided in 2008, when I lost my job that I wanted to switch my career on, then all I really need to do was show up every day and work really, really hard. And there weren't necessarily too many barriers in place to me getting to where I've got. Now, mm-hmm. all that to say that it's not that it's been easy, right? I had a huge mental health breakdown in 2017 because I was working so hard. I was trying to do an executive MBA whilst I was also growing my career with Landsec. I've worked incredibly hard over the last 20 years to get to where I am. Mm. But 
the result of that hard work and having no barriers in place means that you can get to where you are. And actually that same opportunity won't be afforded to a lot of people. However, I do think that organisations are becoming a lot more meritocratic in terms of finding people that have skills and have the right mindset and increasingly starting to promote people that aren't white and male and give people opportunities that aren't you know middle class and come from particular schools so the 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 playing field is becoming uh, a little more fair i think over time what i would say is to everyone that's listening today that's thinking about their career if they wanted to get into sustainability network and mindset and so when I say network, I don't mean like going to events and kind of going around and shaking people's hands and taking business cards, right? What I mean by that is growing a network of people around you. And if you're in uni, right, now's the time to start because your classmates in uni are going to go off to do all sorts of interesting things right around the world. I'm talking about building a transitional network, they call it, of people that you are close to at different levels in different companies. So it might be that you're acting as like a bit of a mentor to a first year student, or it might be that you're acting as a mentor to someone that hasn't even started going to uni yet, but it's interested in sustainability because their chances are they'll end up somewhere interesting too. Mm. People that are much further along from you and you just have to you know, beat people's doors down until they agree to give you 15 minutes of their time. That's the only way to do it, unfortunately, who can give you a helping hand in terms of advising you um, where to go. People in your organization, when you start your first job, you know, signing up to every mentoring scheme or every coaching scheme that's available in those companies, taking every single opportunity to go to every single type of an event, get on every kind of leadership development course you can, say yes, 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 and take every opportunity that you can and keep your people from those networks, right? And when I say keep your people, I mean, if you haven't spoken to them for three months, call their mobile. And be like, what's going on with you? You know, wh- where are you at? How are things? And the worst they can say is like, we don't know each other that well. Why do you keep ringing me? Right. Uh, what they'll probably say is, is, is like, well, this is what I'm doing. It's really interesting. And that will create other opportunities for you. Yeah. So network is really important. The other factor in terms of mindset. I would say. Having a constant awareness of the areas where you aren't strong. and putting the work in to fill those gaps is a good way to kind of have a growth mindset. So I didn't know anything about financial services before I applied for the role of Eva Investors. I now know a reasonable amount, but that's because I've immersed myself in it for the last three years. I didn't really know anything about working for a big FTSE 100 listed company before I went to Landsec, but I did the work, right? And, 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 and did and learned what I what I needed to learn so just looking at the gaps that you have doing the work to fill them will get you to a point where you're just able to engage and able to talk to people in a different way to how you were before you know one thing that I learned through my MBA is that it it, it pays to have t-shaped skills right an inch deep and a mile wide with one kind of a specialism in one particular area so if you're an undergrad student Definitely do a master's because that's going to give you the kind of vertical bit of your T. But over and above that specialist topic, you're trying to gain as much experience in in other factors that are going to give you that really broad uh, knowledge to complement your deep specialism. So, yeah, mindset and 
mindset is is really really important i think good old-fashioned hard work uh, along the way is the thing that gets you there yeah thank you for sharing that i really appreciate uh sharing your journey and thank you very much for having this great conversation with me i really enjoyed it and and thank you for joining green minds thanks so much it's been a real pleasure claudia and uh, i hope that I, i was able to impart something that was useful to everyone today so thanks so much i'm sure you did thank you thank you